he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. Last week, I included verse 9 in our study, if you recall, which actually verse 9 begins the third and final division of this second chapter. But we included verse 9 intentionally last week, as I mentioned as well in verses 5 through 8, these verses constitute the second division within this chapter, but verses 9 through 18 make up the third and final division of chapter 2, which we begin, we'll begin to examine this evening, though mentioning it again in our study last week. Last week we considered the question posed by the writer of Hebrews, which was actually a quote from the Psalms, if you recall, in verses 5 and 6, when we read, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? This is a quote, as I mentioned, of David from Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, when David said, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? And the question posed in this Old Testament reference, what is man, is one, as I, as I answered last week, that is truly testified or answered by man's own sinful nature. What is man? Man is a failure. Man is a sinner. Man is a marred image of the God who created him. And so we recognize that. But David asks the question, and the Hebrew writer, of course, references this question from the Psalms. And when you go back to the Psalms and see from which uh, this, this quote was taken, he says in verse 3 of Psalm 8, as I read, When I consider thy heaven, the work of thy finger, the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Then the question is asked, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? So again, the writer is saying that David is saying in, in Psalms, and the writer of Hebrews, of course, rehearsing this, that when we consider all that is and the, and the, the creation that God has provided and made and all the power that is, is involved in creation itself and in the work of creation itself, he says, then who are we? What are we really? I mean, how small and minute we truly are, and who are we that you would even consider us? That's the question that's being asked. Now, we also have already seen, though the writer of Hebrews explains, of course, that God has given man dominion over all, and though we have not yet to have seen that in reality due to sin, the contrast is then made that Christ is the victor. He is the one who has fulfilled the purpose and plan of God, the Creator, God the Father. And so he says, but man is the highest of the created beings as far as this world is concerned. Man is lower than the angels, we understand that. But as far as the world is concerned and those that dwell therein, that man was given dominion over the world, and we looked at that last week somewhat, but yet that dominion has been forfeited due to sin 
and, and we're reminded of that through uh, the Psalms. We'll look at that in just a moment. So as we consider the greatness and power and the person of our God, we are confronted with the reality then of who and what we are. And in Romans eight twenty two and 23, I remind you again, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. So because of man's sin, creation did not sin. Inanimate objects did not sin. And even the animated creation, meaning the beast of the field and the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, they did not sin. But it was man who, who God gave dominion and stewardship over creation that sinned. And then due to that sin, all of creation itself was put under the bondage and curse of sin. And that is what the, Paul is referring to in Romans 8 that we just read. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Then he says, but not only creation itself, but we, ourselves, mankind, we groan within ourselves. And especially we who are redeemed, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Meaning again, that there will come a time and a day in which we will be delivered out of this sinful flesh in which we live and are bound and be delivered and, and the ultimate work of redemption completed. We are redeemed and, and the, the Christ work of redemption is complete and finished, but we have yet to realize that fully until we are redeemed from this sinful flesh and body in which we live. And so that's what's being referenced here. And Paul is expressing in Romans 8 that even the believer must live in a cursed world due to failure and sin, but again, we will one day be delivered and, and, and no longer have to live under that curse of sin, just like we have been delivered and redeemed spiritually from the bondage of that sin. So while I did include, as I mentioned, verse 9 last week within our study of verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and then 9, for the sake, I did so for the sake of the contrast that is provided, as I previously mentioned, verse 9 being the third or the first verse of the third and final division within this chapter. So he says in verse 9, actually, if you go back, let's just go back for one moment um, to verse 6, when he, he says in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 6, but one in a certain place testified, that's David, in the Psalms, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Then he says, thou made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Here's the stewardship. You put all things in subjection under his feet. Again, that dominion. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. So this is the contrast between the stewardship and the position God had given man and dominion over his creation, but yet man failed and man sinned, and so we do not see man uh, having ultimate dominion over creation, though he is still the highest of the created beings within the world, within this sin-cursed world. Again, the angels are higher created beings, but they're not of this world. But those that are of this world, God has has given man that dominion and made him after his own image and in the likeness of himself. And so that being understood, he says, yet at this point we don't see that fulfillment of man having dominion because of sin. And so then we come to verse 9, and here's the contrast between fallen man and the faithful Redeemer when he says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. So again, he's re reminding us that he was made as a man which is lower than the angels, the heavenly creatures. As earthly creatures, we are under the heavenly creatures. That's what he's saying. 
He go, and he goes on to say, crown with glory and honor, as he mentioned earlier about mankind, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So the statement here, in contrast to, but what is man that thou art mindful of him, in verse 6, and the son of man that thou visitest him, then he says, but we see Jesus. And he goes on to explain, I hope you see this, in Hebrews, quoting Psalms again, he goes on to explain in verses 7 and 8 how that man failed. Man failed in the God-given purpose that he had been created to fulfill. Man failed in that, but we see Jesus. This is the contrasting statement. And in reality, if, we, if we're truly honest about the book of Hebrews and understanding the overall message, but we see Jesus is truly the emphasis of the entire book of Hebrews. The whole point being Christ is better. So despite all of these things and even all the types and shadows, but we see Jesus who is better than all of this. And so the writer is emphasizing this truth. For it is Jesus who is better than all of the uh, types and shadows of which he is the true substance. Man failed in his purpose again, and man cannot redeem himself from his sinful and hopeless condition, but we see Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews not only makes a declaration, but we see Jesus, he also provides detail concerning how we see Jesus. So he's not just making this generalized statement of, okay, man failed, but then there's Jesus, okay? No, he's saying, but we see Jesus, and then in the following verses, in verses 10 through 18, he begins to really reveal or uncover or unfold the truth of how we see Jesus. Who is this Jesus that we now see? So in other words, the writer explains the manner in which Jesus was manifested, that we might see him. The manner in which Jesus became man and was manifested in the flesh so that we might see him for who he is, and also the work which he accomplished on behalf of mankind. So first we see from verse 9, but we see Jesus in his humility. Now, we know this already, but when we really stop to consider this truth, it should be something that we we stand in amazement concerning this very reality and truth. Notice verse 9 again. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, we've already been told that man is lower than the angels, but yet man is crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over the created world, and yet man failed. We see that because not all things are yet put in under his subjection because of sin. That's the implication. So he says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. This is showing us that identity and association with mankind because he is the one who created the very angels of which we are now speaking, but yet he was made lower than the angels, meaning manifested in the flesh of mankind, which is lower as earthly created beings than the heavenly created beings. Now, Jesus is not created. I give must emphasize this truth. That is not what the writer of Hebrews is saying clearly. He is saying that he was manifested in the flesh. He was made lower than the angels in the flesh, in his identity with humanity. Then he goes on to say that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So as we consider the statements in verse 9, the writer does not begin with the exaltation of Jesus, but rather the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is somewhat astounding. We know this already, but think about it for just a moment. The humility of our Lord was necessary for our salvation. Again, it would have been just and proper for the Lord Jesus Christ to have come 
immediately acknowledged, pronounced, announced, proclaimed, declared to be the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to live in all of the majesty and the glory that he left in heaven with the Father. To have brought that with him would have been proper. And to have demonstrated to an entire fallen human race that I am the one to which you must bow and forcefully cause man to submit to him just out of awe and fear and terror of him being the very creator. That would have been right. He could have come with great glory and great majesty, and yet he comes manifested in the flesh through a virgin birth, which was then accused, of course, of he himself being born as one who was born in sin, which was not true, of course, and took all the shame not only concerning that, but also the shame concerning the death upon the cross and the hatred of the people to whom he came to minister and ultimately those even he would save. And so we see Christ not coming in dominion and authority, though he possessed it, but yet he comes in humility. Redemption required a sacrifice of the just for the unjust. First Peter 3.18, Peter wrote and said, For Christ also hath, suffered, hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. That is a complete summarization of everything the Hebrew writer is saying in these verses. He says, Peter says, Christ suffered. He's already talking about suffering and his humility. We're going to see that further. He says, the just for the unjust. He who who thought it not robbery, as Philippians 2 says, to be equal with God, yet humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And he says, the reason he suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, was so that he might bring us to God. It required the just sacrifice in the flesh, but just righteous flesh, for the unrighteous and unjust flesh of sinful mankind. This was required, but quickened by the Spirit. The Spirit of God brought that flesh to life in a glorified body. Our sinful flesh could not be forgiven apart from the sinless sacrifice in the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was for this very reason that the incarnation was necessary for our salvation. Jesus humbled himself that he might die for mankind. And think of this for a moment. What angel is ever testified of in Scripture that has died? They are eternally judged. And that is eternal death in that respect. But we're talking about spiritual eternal death, not a physical death, because they are not physical beings. But Christ humbled himself to the flesh for this reason. The reason he was not manifesting himself as a, as a heavenly being, but rather as an earthly being, in the flesh that is, is he manifested, I said, not created, but manifested himself in that fashion, is because that is what was required for him to die for sinful flesh. This was absolutely required. And what's very interesting is the contradiction between the humility of Christ and the pride of men. It was for the very pride of man that it was necessary for Christ to humble himself to death. It's interesting, is it not, that men 
in their own arrogance and pride and foolishness, will attempt to make themselves appear to be or to present themselves in some manner that is actually greater than what they actually are. Whereas Christ, who is the very King of kings and Lord of lords, humbled himself, making not a reputation for himself, though he is the reputable one, (laughs) that he might die humbly in humility for the very arrogance and pride of man which attempted to exalt themselves above him. Man failed and consequently is conquered by death, but Jesus conquered death on behalf of man. It was only after the demonstration of the humility of Christ in the flesh that the Father then exalted him above all others in a glorified body as the one who conquered death for mankind. And we'll deal with this a little more in just a moment because even when it says, for instance, um, when we read in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, for it became him who, for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Well, Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God. He is the just. He is the righteous one. How, does he, how, how is it that he's made perfect? It's talking about the flesh of our Lord. Not that it was sinful either. It was sinless. But yet it's saying it was through sufferings he became the perfect sacrifice through his sufferings, through the flesh in which he lived. He is now the captain of our salvation, but he had to humble himself. He had to die in the flesh. It's very interesting. I remember years back reading a, um, a statement in an article. Um, some of you may be familiar with this. Uh, he's a professed atheist, of course, very intelligent man, but yet foolish in his beliefs and in his many of his declarations, of course, but yet uh, Richard Dawkins. And he made a statement concerning if God is, is loving and good in God, then why could he not, and, and he doesn't believe in God or professes, obviously, to reject God and the idea of God, but yet his statement was along the lines, I paraphrase, but he said that if God is God and God is loving and God is good and all-powerful, then why would he resort to either child abuse of his own son or self-mutilation if you're going to view them as an eternal godhead he said why would he resort to that whenever all he had to have done was just simply say i forgive you well such a ridiculous statement though at first you may think about that and go well why is that well but the ridiculousness of the statement is in the false premise of who god is and what was required for man's sin God is just. Romans explains this to us, that the justifier might remain just. That Christ was the propitiation for sin because God is just and he is also the justifier. But that the justifier might remain just, therefore able to justify, it required that there be a a sacrifice, a payment for the sinfulness of man in the flesh. The point being this, the flesh was the problem and the flesh had to be the answer. But the flesh of man could never provide the answer. Only a sinless, righteous Son of God in the flesh could pay the sin debt. Would be able to offer himself as a sacrifice and atonement to satisfy the wrath of a holy God, which is justly executed upon sinful man. And so when you really understand the purpose of God in redemption, and you really understand 
Who man is? What is man that thou art mindful of him? But we see Jesus. When you really understand these truths, then redemption makes absolute sense. When I say makes sense, I don't say we deserve it. That's not what I mean. But even what was required for our redemption is not some abstract idea of which this is just how God planned it to be. No, it's what was required for our redemption as fallen mankind. And it makes perfect logical sense when you understand who God declares himself to be, who man is in his own sinful fallen nature and depraved state and helpless state, and then you see God's provision in Christ as he declares it. And so Christ is the one who conquered this death for man. And it says that, of course, Ephesians, I'm sorry, Philippians 2.89, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Verse 9, wherefore, for this reason, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So here we see Christ in his humility, which resulted in his exaltation, Christ meaning the anointed one, the Messiah, not the eternal Jesus who was with the Father, but the manifestation of this Jesus in the flesh. The humbling of of Jesus is his incarnation. The exaltation of Jesus is in the resurrection and ascension of a glorified body. This is the exaltation of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Two, we not only see Jesus in his humility, but we see Jesus in his sufferings. Look at verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The humility of Christ was not only in the fact that he lowered himself to take on human flesh, but his humility was also manifested by the truth that Jesus knew he was humbling himself to great suffering and even the death of the cross. Christ was fully aware of this in his eternal covenant with the Father. They, he was fully aware and privy to the fact that he was coming to earth not to live as a king worshipped by the people, but rather to live as a servant who would die for those people who even hated him. This is true humility and suffering. Acts 17, 2 and 3, Paul, as his manner was, says, went in unto them in three Sabbath days reason with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Again, notice what he says. This Jesus is Christ. This Jesus who humbled himself and died, suffered unto the death of the cross. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is what was required. He must needs have suffered and risen again for your redemption. When Jesus was talking on the two to the road, on the road to Emmaus, he stated in Luke 24, 25 through 27, Then he said, Jesus said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Listen to what he says in verse 26. Ought not Christ, this is himself, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, wasn't it required that this anointed one, that Jesus humble himself, take on the form of the flesh, and suffer? even unto death, that he might enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The prophet Isaiah declared that God the Father was pleased in the sufferings of Christ. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. But yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, 
He shall see a seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. All of this was required, the humility of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding us, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Who is man? What is man? In light of all of creation, all of God's power, and all of God's glory, all of the majesty of the creator, what and who is man? The one who God created, and then the one who failed in the very purpose in which he was created, who is this man? What is this man? But we see Jesus in his humility. We see Jesus in his suffering. And then third, we see Jesus in his humanity. Verses 11 through 16. Let's read those together. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Here he's talking about the humanity of Christ. That he took on the flesh. We are made one by the Spirit of God, but the only way that was possible was through the flesh of Jesus being crucified, suffering, humbling himself to the flesh. And then verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then, listen to what he says here, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily or truly he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on them the seed of Abraham. Here we have it again. Now, I admit, this is somewhat of a redundant passage to the previously stated truths of this text. But within this portion of the passage, the writer places an emphasis on the unity provided by the manifestation of Christ in the flesh. And this is truly indicated by the statements in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. This is talking about his humanity. Then he goes on to say in verse 16, for verily, truly, he took not on him the nature of angels, but in contrast to that, he took on him the seed of Abraham. What was the reason? Why was this necessary? Because flesh was and is the problem. Again, now interestingly enough, we know that there were angels that were in, in I believe it's Titus or Timothy. I believe it's Timothy, if I'm not mistaken. But Paul refers to them as elect angels. They are literally chosen angels. And those are the angels that God preserved from falling, preserved from sinning. The reference is very clear. And then there are also the fallen angels of course, who did sin. And it, Scripture talks about the redemption of man and salvation of man and how that the holy angels, those who are the elect or chosen angels of God, the holy angels, how that they desire to long to look into these things concerning the redemption of man. Now, there's a reason for that. Because there was no angelic manifestation of Jesus Christ who suffered and died for the redemption of fallen angels. But there is a human manifestation of Christ who has died, suffered, and risen on the behalf of fallen humanity. And the angels marvel and desire to look into this because there is no provision for the fallen angelic creatures. But God in His infinite wisdom and grace and mercy purposed to send his son in the flesh lower than the angels 
to redeem a fallen man. He did not take on him the nature of angels, but took on the seed of Abraham. And then fourth and last, but we see Jesus in his faithfulness. Look at verse 17 and verse 18. Wherefore, in all these things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. Jesus Christ is faithful in everything and more in which man has failed. He is faithful in his priesthood, these verses tell us. He's faithful in his work of reconciliation. What is reconciliation again? To reconcile is to remove the hostility that existed. Christ removed the hostility that existed between God and men for those who have come to faith in him, of course. Not for all of mankind. That has been demonstrated for all of mankind, but it's only a reality and realized by those who come to faith in Christ or will come to faith in Christ. Then also he is faithful in his aid and help to mankind. He is faithful, and it's through his faithfulness to take on human flesh. He has identified with us, intercedes for us, reconciles us to God, and he is our helper. And he is faithful. Man has failed, but we see Jesus who is faithful. And this is the emphasis that the writer is providing for us. None is faithful like our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, 5 and 6, in his greeting, John the beloved wrote, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why not? Hebrews 13, 8. The writer says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, he remains the same. Not meaning in the flesh, the person of this Jesus is forever the same. Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shall Thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Christ is faithful. Man has failed. He was given this purpose and failed in that purpose. Hence, the purpose is not yet fulfilled in man. It one day will be because of Christ who is faithful. But despite the fact that man is a failure We see Jesus in his humility. We see Jesus in his sufferings. We see Jesus in his humanity. And we see Jesus in his faithfulness. The one who is eternally faithful. Really, the entire emphasis of the entire book of Hebrews ultimately is this truth. It's that Christ is better, but here's the point. But we see Jesus who is faithful better this is the true emphasis of the entirety of the book let's pray together father